I'm Chaplain Jacob Scott of the Oregon National Guard. This is the Hope in the Trenches podcast. We're going forward. I'll sit down for conversations with people who offer interesting and informative perspectives on finding strength for life and work in the trenches and even improving our spiritual posture. Whether you feel like you're under heavy bombardment or ready to go over the top toward a new objective, it's good to be with you. Great. Well, Colonel Grossman, Dave, thanks so much for, for joining us on Hope in the Trenches this morning. My, my pleasure, Chaplain. An honor to have uh, you and Paul on board today. I'm here to serve. Tell me where we want to go. Let's, let's have some fun. <laughs> well, our, our big idea is living and leading with hope. And, and I know we'll get there having, having heard you and speak before and having read some of your books. Um, it, well, and really, it's been fundamental for how, I, uh, how I've understood the warrior task and, and what, what those who raise their right hand to serve in the military have been asked to, to do or, and, and to potentially to lay their lives on the line. So uh, I'll just start it off. Um, you, you're the, you started a research group called the Killology Research Group. Yeah. And could you, tell, could you tell us what that is? And Well, because it's, it's not about teaching people to kill, is it? Right. Yeah. It was, it was intentionally provocative from the beginning back in 1995 when uh, my book on killing came out. And we're in the process of rebranding now, Grossman on Truth. You know, it, uh, it's funny. I, I had a guy from France. The book on killing has done amazing. It's a uh, half-man copy sold in English, translated to seven languages now. Um, and uh, it, it Google Scholar, which is, you know, scholar.google.com. It's a really interesting resource. It says it's been cited over 3,000 times in scholarly works, you know, on killing. Mm -hmm. So it was intensely provocative. It got people's attention. It's really the only really deep scholarly book ever really done on the subject. And, and a guy from France sent me an email. He said, you know, I was on an airplane reading this book, and, and I could have been reading child pornography, and they would have treated me so bad just looking at the title. So, you know, in France, it was like taboo to even – you know, evil to talk about a book on killing. Well, mm -hmm. that same dynamic has come over here now. What was useful and provocative, killology is now kind of counterproductive. So we're rebranding. But, uh, you know, sexology, suicidology, you know, suicidology is not about teaching how to commit suicide. You know, criminology is not about teaching how to be a criminal. Uh, killology is not about teaching to kill. It's about understanding the fact there's an enable and restrain killing in our society. What I tell people is the hard thing, the hard thing to explain is not that one in a million terrible crime. It's the 99.9% .9 of our citizens go a lifetime, never kill anybody or even seriously attempt to. Explain that. Mm -hmm. You know, divorce, infidelity, layoff, traffic accidents, you know, in a lifetime of provocation. Less than one in a thousand citizens will even seriously attempt to take a human life. Explain that. So there's this whole array of factors that restrain violence in our society. And we know how we can turn them on and turn them off. And, and that's got direct application of what's going on in society today and how we can control violence and, and what we're doing. Uh, and it spins out in an entirely different field, you know. Medical technology is holding down the murder rate year after year. The number of dead people mm -hmm. completely misrepresent the situation. The entire field of criminology, the entire field of criminal justice is lying to us every year when they give us the murder rate and don't allow for medical technology. I was invited to the White House uh, to brief Vice President Pence 
uh, I told him, you know, it, it's like like we talk about minimum wage year over year without allowing for inflation. What if I said, well, you make $20 an hour. Your grandpa made 25 cents an hour. Look how good you've got it. Well, we all know the lie right off the bat. Boom, inflation. But we say, wow, the murder rate's up, but it's still not as bad as it was in the 1960s. Boom. We should get the lie right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's bad. It's desperately bad. And so this whole study of killing and, and the dynamics uh, has really made a contribution. You know, the, the whole field of criminology and criminal justice just doesn't want to go there. It's actually much, much worse than it looks. And and right off the bat, in one sentence, you can convince any audience that these guys these guys are misrepresenting the situation. So that's all kind of aspects of killology, and uh, and understanding how we turn it on and turn it off, and we understand military training that makes killing a condition reflex. Uh, we understand we do it with safeguards to adults, and even then there's cause for concern. We also understand the video games can potentially be doing the same thing for a whole generation mm-hmm. as they play these hyper-realistic video games to get the same condition response. So that's kind of killology in a nutshell, if you will. Yeah, because it's such a part of human history, and we're really only, I think, maybe peeling back some of the outside layers on what killing does to a, to a person, to the human, and the, the trauma that, uh, that those violent acts Im- impose upon a person. Yeah. Uh, nature is red in, tru- in tooth and claw, right? And, and that this violence has, so we, how do we manage it? How do we prevent it? Yeah. And, and well, and of course, uh, I think maybe it was you in one of your presentations, the first time I heard the, the phrase that, um, well, we, we need sheepdogs, and, and that the sheep are always afraid of the sheep dog until the wolf comes around. Um, but the, the fact of human history and in human existence is that there, there are wolves. And, and so we need people to stand in between the wolves and, and those to whom they would seek to do harm. Yeah. You know, I did a, a piece in an archaeology uh, journal, co-authored a piece with an archaeologist a while back, about how historical battles have completely misrepresented you know, the winner wants to claim that he killed all these guys in this battle. But when we look at the archaeological remnants, we see that the actual battle, there's very little killing, is during the pursuit phase. We got this long, drawn-out archaeological chain of dead bodies and debris during the pursuit phase. Hmm. And then yet the chariot and the, and the cavalry and those who have mobility advantages that do most of the killing. And, and a lot of them just, you know, said, you know, sawed this for a game of soldiers and went home. Uh, in, the, in the war in Panama, when we invaded Panama with this initial estimate of all these number of dead people. And then they went and checked up on them all. And, and a big bunch of them just went to the home village and, and got on with life. They, you know, they threw away this stuff, slipped off in the jungle, went to their home village and went back to life. And what we thought, we destroyed this unit. A large portion of them, they weren't dead. They weren't wounded. They just went home. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and that's this representation of what's really been happening in combat throughout history. And, and the winner says, oh, I killed all these guys. And most of them just, you know, they were killed in the pursuit phase afterwards or they just went home. And, and, and they're, they're happy to let the, the, the king or the victor take credit for killing them. And they got on with their lives. So this misrepresentation of killing throughout history is really a, Really, really pretty powerful. I think we made a real contribution. And certainly as far as the scholarly application of on killing in Google Scholar, it's been really rewarding to see it being used in so many different aspects. I heard it said recently that one of the 
one of the key tasks for chaplains in, in the military is to prepare people to die. Um, at, the, at the same time, we owe it to people to prepare them for the eventuality that they might be called upon to take a human life in defense of others and in defense of all the things that we hold dear. You, you know, I, I think the heart of that revolves around this concept of love. Hmm. And, you know, uh, the opposite of evil is, is love. Uh, evil is the absence of love, just as darkness is the absence of light. And it's our love for our country, our love for our comrades. Men don't die in battle for some cause. They, they die for the guy next to him. Audie Murphy, a most decorated American soldier, was asked one time why he did it. And his answer was, they were killing my friends. That's his manifestation of love. Not only is love the opposite of evil. You know, Stephen Pressfield in Gates of Fire, you know, what's the opposite of fear? Uh, love quenches fear as water quenches fire. You know, the Bible says, you know, that we were not given a spirit of fear, but of sound mind and of mm-hmm. love. Bible says perfect love casts out fear. So it's our motivation, our love for our family. You know, I, I'm doing a lot of work with law enforcement right now, and they're just hurting so bad. Retention is down. Recruiting is down. They're being attacked and condemned on the streets on a daily basis. Just just pray for our cops. It's, it's hard to believe the hell a lot of them are living in. LAPD right now is paying a $25,000 signing bonus for anybody who lateral transfers from any other agency in America to come to LAPD. $25,000 check right now, just come to LAPD and, and and they can't get anybody. Nobody wants to have anything to do with it. You know, we know about the prosecutor in LA if you're paying any attention to what's going on. We know about law and order. We know about cops under attack. And 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 that's this, this dynamic of why do we keep doing what we do? Oh, I'm 65 years old. I spend the vast majority of my time on the road away from my brother, 47 years, my high school sweetheart, you know, because I love my children. I love my grandchildren. I love my nation. I love my God. And in these in these hard times, you know, in combat, it's love for each other that sustains people. And and I think in these dark times, it's love for our God, it's love for our country, and love for for our our our, our family. That, that sustains us. And one of the other angles on all of that, one of the things coming unglued, you know, we say the Pledge of Allegiance and we, we do the national anthem before every ball game. There is a biological need in every human being to be part of a larger group. <clears throat> Excuse me. One person in the jungle by themselves is cat food. Ten people with spears is the most dangerous alpha predator on the planet. So our group is our nation. We're just filled with dynamics that draw us together as a nation, the Pledge of Allegiance, the National Anthem. So when some athlete dishonors the pledge and dishonors the anthem, if it's cool to be unpatriotic, then then who will they give their allegiance to? And the gangs will fill that gap in a blink of an eye. Every, every, every athlete that dishonors the anthem, you know, takes a knee during the anthem, that they're, they're recruiters for gangbangers. And the gangs have exploded in numbers. And 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 when your when your nation tells you to kill people, you do. Your nation says it's World War II. Go to Germany, kill Nazis, Roger out. And they're telling their their gangbangers to kill cops. Cops are evil, and they do. Last year we had the single worst year-over-year increase in cops murdered in the history of our nation. Every year, cops have better body armor, better tactics, better medical technology. You know, the only good measure the year-over-year increase. We've never seen anything remotely like what happened last year, as far as cops murdered in the line of duty and. As of August last year, we had more cops murdered than all the previous year put together. And that was a bad year. And this year, this year, it's going to be worse. It's compound interest. 
So th- this whole dynamic of the breakdown of our structure, love for our nation, love for our family, love for our God, that's that's what sustains us. That's what the chaplain brings to the table. And we don't do what we do out of hate. We don't do what we do. We do it to protect what we love. And, and, and that manifestation of sacrificial love brings us back to Jesus and, and is the most powerful, towering, uh, transformational process in, in human history. And, uh, and, and, and I think that idea of the chaplains, you know, preparing people to die, what, what are men prepared to die for? Well, around the world, a mama critter of most species will die for babies, but they won't die for anybody else's babies. You know, what manner of love is this that men will walk out the door and lay their life down for strangers? Mm-hmm. That's what our cops do every day. You know, so again, that, that dynamic of the chaplain is so well put and far deeper than people would think. So in my uh, in my vocation, or well, in my in my civilian vocation as a in my faith tradition as a, a pastor, I'm a Lutheran pastor by trade. I actually uh, I actually went to seminary and spent the better part of six years in and around St. Louis, and so I'm very familiar with that area. But it, so in my tradition, we use an old German word, Seelsorger, um, which is literally means the one who cares for the soul to describe that that vocation of a, of a pastor or a chaplain or a, or a or a minister, but. But right, we do we do train people who who are willing to step into dangerous situations and be prepared to do violence. And so, Paul and I had a great conversation yesterday about uh, some of that some of that training and and really the moral the moral basis for it because we want our warriors to make informed decisions in a split second when life and death is is on the line. Um, yeah. And Paul, uh, you had you a great know, question or a great observation on that. Yeah. Well, yeah. We, we said on killing that uh, uh, it, it, I, I enlisted in 1974. It was post Lai, And we were like the very first soldiers who were taught how to disobey an order. Mm-hmm. And throughout human history, nobody, nobody taught soldiers, you will disobey this order. This is how you disobey an order. You know, you go to the chain of command, and if that doesn't work, go to the chaplain. And the chaplain is actually an alternative mechanism for this moral dynamic. What a revolution in human history that the U.S. Armed Forces are really far and away, without a doubt, I think the first armed forces in human history being systematically taught, no, you, you, don't, you don't obey an unlawful order. You, 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 you don't, so, you know, it, 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 when it comes time for you to be tried, the fact you're obeying orders is not going to get you out of trouble. Hmm. Uh, and, and what a revolution in our armed forces. And what a thing to, to be proud of, I think, to recognize that kind of growth as an armed forces and the, the way we led uh, into this realm of, of creating people more than ever who were expected to make those moral decisions at, at, the, at the moment of truth. Sure. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, some of the, the big pieces that, that I get from your book is, uh, you know, training, First of all, and, and then being you know, proficient and efficient at your job. Uh, there's a target; it's up. I see it. I engage it. It's down. Uh, and then when you get put in the real world and you're doing it for real, um, you know when you have that muscle memory and uh, you've developed those skills. I think as a leader and as a soldier, you're able to make those decisions, uh, yeah. you know, in a calmer, uh, more organized fashion. So you're not just killing indiscriminately or you're just not, you know, running around like a chicken with your head cut off, but you're actually doing something systematically or there is a greater purpose that's nested into uh, some type yeah. of mission, a higher mission as well. And so uh, that's one of the pieces that I always 
was very thankful for as far as some of my training was was that you know i enjoy you know a it's fun to go to the range <laughs> you test your skills and, and do those type of things but then what you don't understand what you're doing subconsciously is a lot of the things that are described in your book uh and uh, it was one of the things that you know really kind of resonated with me as i came back um you know after one of my more uh exciting deployments we'll call um and i started reflecting a little bit was like oh yeah you know that there is something to that um that that training is important um not just to you know desensitize but in in order to be a more effective leader more effective force you know what one of my books uh, assassination generation uh has invited the white house as part of president trump's roundtable on video games and 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 personally handed the president a copy of the book, and then was briefing Vice President Pence. And if we understand how pop-up targets become a conditioned response, then I think as military, we've got something to bring to the table, say, hey, you know, the violent video games could be doing the same thing to the kids. And this could very much be a new factor in the equation. Uh, we've never had juveniles committing mass murders in their schools in human history. You know, I, I always throw up a, a picture of an M1 carbine. World War II, 7 million M1 carbines were manufactured, 20, 30-round magazines, semi-automatic. They were junk. You could buy them. In, 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 in 1948, an 8-year-old could walk in the hardware store, buy an M1 carbine, and walk out the door. Uh, uh, you know, and yet these crimes never happened. The, the, the weapon is is basically ballistically identical to the weapons committing these massacres now we got to ask ourselves what is the new factor and i think us in the in the military environment after 20 years of war we can come home and say look this is what's happening to our children this is the new factor we know how to train men and women to kill and we know these these video games these murder simulators be inflicted upon children are a are, are new ingredient in the equation. It could be doing the same thing to children. And not all of them, but all you need is one in a million, and you've got, you've got the most horrific crime you could imagine happening on a steady basis. So uh, there's an application. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And, and in many ways, the best part of the Lord of the Rings is the hobbits coming home and sorting out the Shire afterwards mm-hmm. and using their skills and their knowledge and their abilities to... Uh, to come back home and sort things out at home. And I think it's time after 20 years of war for those who have been in the military stand up and say, hey, we, we know how this training empowered us as adults under discipline and, and, and with cause for some concern. But now we see the same thing being done indiscriminately to our children. I talk in assassination generations. In 2005, the state of California overwhelmingly voted to regulate children's access to violent video games. The data was that powerful. Home of Hollywood, home of Silicon Valley. Arnold Schwarzenegger signed the law. Nobody knows that. The video game industry fought all the way to the Supreme Court to sell any game to any kid at any age. And they and they they conned seven old men that never played Pong in their life. The overturning the Supreme Court, yeah, overturning the California law. And and you know, again, for those of us who who understand the killing enabling processes and military training. We should say, you know, and again, the data in 2005 was so enormously overwhelming. The whole state of California overwhelmingly voted for this law. And this industry fought all the way to the Supreme Court, and they lied. The Selena game didn't get at any age. And that's a piece of history they want to go away. 
but the, again, that's that's what you know. We can we can come home. We can take our military experience and apply it, and say there's nothing wrong here. We know what the new ingredient is. Yeah, and so we. And I was so, oh. oh, I'm sorry, Dave. Yeah. yeah, so we do. We we spend a lot of time and effort training people to go into situations that are incredibly complex, dynamic, violent, and to to survive. And so there are some adaptive behaviors that we develop in order to 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 survive in in dangerous situations in combat zones and and it, you know maybe a, a broad term for some of that is is combat stress the and the, the combat stress the stress of that environment shapes some of our behaviors we we learn how to adapt and how to how to survive a lot of those behaviors that serve us well in the villages you know in in Nasiriyah or in Sadr city in in Iraq or in a, a mud walled village in Afghanistan and and the the heightened awareness the the attention to detail things like that 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 helps you survive in that environment it doesn't work so well in main street um, or if you're you know or if, or if you're sitting in in Starbucks or even sitting in church or in a classroom um, some of those the same things that we learn in those environments aren't You've got to learn how to come back. Um, what do you What do you think goes goes into that, and how can we How can we Can you turn it on and turn it off, or how do you, What do you What do you, what's, What are your thoughts yeah. on transitioning well, well, back? First off, yeah, one of our greatest challenges out there. Uh, when I teach, I teach about Hollywood gives us two goofy myths. Uh, first is the pity party, the idea that everyone's been destroyed by war. And, right. You know, the Vietnam veteran really was spit on. On, on just on a vast scale, it's in my, I've demonstrated in the book. It's irrefutable. The Vietnam veteran was called baby killer. They were spit on. They were attacked. Uh, the anti-war movement focused on the individual and their their evil. Well, the anti-war movement in this war says they're broken. They're all damaged goods. Mm -hmm. So you've heard twenty-two veterans a day take their lives, you know, and something like that. But yeah. the word veteran and combat veteran are two different things. When they say 22 veterans a day take their life, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, early 70s, they drafted everybody. Elvis Presley was drafted. He served two years. If Elvis was still alive and if Elvis took his life, he would be one of those 22 veterans a day who take their life. Yeah. Yeah, and most people didn't know that. Yeah, that's the myth. It's, it's, you're either a Medal of Honor recipient or you're on the verge of suicide or homelessness. Yeah. Yeah. When the truth is, and when we look at, 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 at incidents of PTSD, you know, they all have PTSD and they're all suicidal. Well, the very best study we have, and I always throw up a, a screenshot from the VA website, uh, basically about 10% of the adult population, you push the right button and get a, you get a post-traumatic response. The baseline PTSD in the population may be around 10%. Among the veterans, just about 5% more contract PTSD. The bottom line is the British studied their troops in Afghanistan. The Dutch studied their troops. Our best studies of our troops, actual clinical diagnosis on the ground, about 5% contract PTSD. And we're darn good at treating it. And, and now, as, as for those who claim PTSD when they get out, that's a different story. Sure. And there's a book coming out shortly that I wrote a piece on that's going to really, really deal with that. A lot of high-powered general officers are getting behind how the, the VA system is is broken. Uh, a lot of people don't know, but, but uh, you know, uh, Omar Bradley, after World War II, was part of a, a study of the VA system, and he said it's broken. We're creating a system where people have an incentive 
to claim psychiatric casualties and to never get better. And, and that problem still exists. So just, just understand this misrepresentation that they're all broken. Sure. Uh, they all have PTSD. No, they don't. About 5% contract PTSD. We're darn good at treating it. You know, they're all suicidal. No, they're not. Uh, we can talk a lot more about this explosion of suicide worldwide. One of the new ingredients, one of the most important ingredients is sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. Sleep-deprived soldiers are up to five times more likely to take their life. The best study, the best meta-study on suicide said not only is sleep deprivation the key factor in suicide, it's the most remediable factor. If you wanted to do something about suicide, boom, the very first thing you do is, is sleep deprivation, you know, and make sure they get sufficient sleep. So this myth that they're all broken, they're all suicidal and they're all homicidal, that's that's the current anti-war attack on our veterans. It's like the Vietnam veterans being spit on. This this horrendous misrepresentation, you know, 10% of the 10% of the prison population veterans. Well, 20% of adult American males are veterans. You know, the, the veteran and combat veteran are two different things. You know, and if, if they come to the military and they're a dirtbag and we kick them out, they're still a veteran and they still count against us, you know. So in jail. So this 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 myth that they're all destroyed should should enrage us. But sure. there is a portion who need our help and we're darn good at giving it. I spoke at a uh, Friday before last, I, I spoke, it was, the, it was a mental health day at an Air Force base in Florida. And the one thing their mental health providers said is we're really, really good at treating PTSD. We have an enormous success rate. The vast majority come out the other end with post-traumatic growth. And so we're really good at treating PTSD. We get better every year, but you got to come to us. You got to let us know you have a problem. There's no shame in getting help. You know, the other, the pity party and the macho man, you know, I don't need any help. I can macho it out. That, that's crazy. You know, the docs are good. I, I tell cops, how can you help other people if you can't help yourself? Yeah. No. And, and go, into, go into treatment expecting you're going to get better. And, and, and the, the veterans of this war are the new greatest generation. And, and they have post-traumatic growth. And the ones who have PTSD and get better, they have post-traumatic growth. The in-state of trauma, you know, is uh, the end state of trauma is growth. I think it's uh, I think it was Hemingway said life breaks everyone, and usually we're stronger in the broken spots, uh, and that's that dynamic of post traumatic growth. So this mirror, this broken generation, they're all suicidal and they're all homicidal and they all have PTSD. This should enrage us. A new greatest generation coming home. I think we should have incredible hope for what the veterans, they represent the very best. And we, we talk about our veterans in this war, something to think about. Four years into the war, there was nobody left who enlisted before the war and got stuck with the war. So right about four, five, six years into the war, every single person had raised the right hand to enlist or re-enlist in time of war. The last time we fought a war with 100% wartime volunteers was American Revolution. Starting in 1812, we always had people enlist before the war, got stuck with the war. Longo as well as had the draft. The, 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 the warriors who answered the nation's call in 20 years of war are magnificent. Uh, it, it, my grandson just enlisted in the Indiana Guard. I would have concerns about it, but Indiana Guard's not a bad place to be. He's in basic training right now, 20 years old, two years of college. With the, you know, it, But I, I have mixed emotions about my my grandson being in the in the army under the current leadership, and I'm glad he didn't ask anybody. He just went and did it. He's going to be an intel analyst. That's what he chose. But uh, 
uh, but I'm glad he he decided to go with the guard, you know, especially a guard of a state like like Indiana, you know. But uh, uh, these are crazy times, and this attack on our veterans and now the current leadership dynamic, uh, they're cause for concern. And those who do choose to answer the nation's call, I uh, really represent in many ways our best, and we we're able to make them better people when they come out the other end. We truly are. I think, like anything, soldiers are just people, right? And so, like, when you experience anything, you want to try to process it and understand it. And so just because I come back from, you know, multiple tours and I'm trying to process all this stuff uh, and I go, you know, try to find help, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm broken. You know, it doesn't mean uh, that that I can't be productive or, you know, that I need to have some type of pity party, as you say. but, you know, I'm just trying to gather resources in order to better process it um, and to live a better life that, that, that learns from it, you know. And, and that's yeah. the thing is, like, I, you know, when I got back, it, I, you know, I talked to all my soldiers. Like, I'm very, very vocal about, yeah, you know, I, tr- I treat my brain just as much as I treat my, my uh, you know, my back or my, <laughs> my legs or my arms or anything, you know. A, I need to go to the gym. I need to work it out. And then if there's something wrong with it, I go see a professional to, to kind of get their, their look at it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't see um, behavioral health as any different or, or the chaplain corps, you know, going and, and having conversations and trying to understand it and process it. And I think that's the one thing is like we do, we get we, we like to put people in buckets, right? And, and the soldiers go in this bucket and they're like, well, you know, we're, we're people first, right? And just like I said, you know, anything um, – you know, I think anyone in this world is just trying to make sense of it. You know, I want to make sense of what happened over there and, and how I can grow from it. And uh, I think it's important that, that we go out and, and, and we do that. But I, I strongly agree. And that's one of, one of the coolest things I really like about this generation of soldiers um, is, you know, we're coming back and, you know, we may be in our 20s, 30s, 40s, but we're realizing, oh, we, we still have a whole another life to live. You know, there's things that we can do. And you start seeing these, these really cool races. You start seeing these really cool veteran groups that are going out. They're doing these incredible things opposed to uh, maybe just bellying up to the bar and telling war stories for the next 30 years. Uh, and that's one of the things that I really um, I really enjoy watching with this generation of soldiers is, you know, you're taught some very valuable lessons early in war, whether you're 20 or 30 or something, and to take those lessons and then apply them to life, uh, it, it's pretty cool to, to, to watch some of the soldiers do some things um, in, in some of the organizations that are coming out. And so that's what I always tell soldiers, too, is like, hey, don't fall into this poor me guy in a party, you know, go ahead and, and, and embrace these other things. And if you can't find them, make, make some, <laughs> you know, uh, there's nothing out there and, that and says you can't. It's a critical point. You know, we've got, you know, at West Point as a psych professor, we present cases, you know, a soldier is shot in combat. He thinks he's going to die. So he dies. Yep. And we got another person who's shot multiple times who got his mindset, you know, I'm going to drive on. One of the things we say in on, on killing is you can lose a gallon of blood. You know, you can you can just pour a, a, a gallon of strawberry milk on the concrete. Glug, 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 glug. That's how much blood you can lose and not lose hydraulics. You know, you got to have this mindset that I can suck up shots and drive on. And we hold up examples like that. There really are examples of people who are shot once with a, with a non-life-threatening wound who died because they think they should. 
Well, how much more so have we got people getting PTSD because they think they should? Uh, and, and, and we've just got to be vigorous in confronting that and saying, no, you're going to be stronger for this period. So even if you have PTSD, mm-hmm. we're going to treat it, going to come out the other end stronger. And I think that's really well put. We're trying to come to terms with what happened. And there's nothing wrong with that. And you should come out the other end with post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. And, and really, that's the key thing we want to hold out there is this a new greatest generation, post-traumatic growth. That learning, that adaptation, taking those experiences, problem solving under extreme duress and, and, and doing something better. I, that was one phrase that I heard, oh, probably 10, 15 years ago already was, uh, don't let your military service be the last great thing that you did. Don't don't let your deployments to Iraq or Afghanistan be the last great thing that you ever did. Well, of course, Dave, you're an example of that where you took your experiences in the military and the opportunities that the military gave you and you've, and you've turned it into a to a career and a message yep. um, that, yep. beyond. And, and it was... Um, the Honorable uh, Patrick Murphy, he was acting secretary of the army probably around like 2016, 17. And he said, um, every soldier is a leader of character for a lifetime of service, um, which is just an incredibly powerful message. And the, the chief of chaplains, Tom Soldrum, uh, chaplain major general Tom Soldrum too, he says, we want to return our people to their communities um, whole and healthy and, and stronger than they were before. It doesn't mean there won't be scars because we ask people to do some, some difficult things, mm-hmm. um, but to be yeah, able to contribute. For me right now, I'm, I got out in 97, December 97, and uh, I've now been out longer than I was in. I served 24 years, and now I'm in my, you know, well in my 25th year doing this. And when I got out, I thought, you know, I've got a few years left. I'll see if I do something productive. Now here I am, having actually spent more time doing this. And, and I have every cause to hope that I can do it for another 20 years. So we've got this concept that, you know, when we retire, we're this ancient old creature who's, who is not good for anything anymore. And the truth is just the opposite. You know, just that there, there's so much left in front of you. You know, you served honorably, but you... You build from that. You grow from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and throughout your lifespan, that this idea, you know, I remember as a young uh, young private in the orderly room in 82nd Airborne Division, and First Sergeant Donald R. Wingrove, who'd been a Sante Raider in Vietnam Special Forces. And, and I thought it was ancient. I thought it was just like this <laughs> ancient creature who was just one step away from the grave. It, it, you know, at, at most, he was in his early 40s, probably his late 30s. <laughs> he mm-hmm. wasn't ancient. He wasn't old. <laughs> But, you know, you've got guys in their unit that look at you right now, Paul, and they say, this guy is, you know, one step away from the grave. You yeah. know, he's going to retire. <laughs> and, and that's going to be it. No, no. Yeah. You have you have two-thirds of your adult lifetime still in front of you, even after serving for a quarter of a century, you know, ideally. And, uh, and, and so this idea that how much more we've got to give, you're not broken, you're not done. I think it's such a powerful message to pass on. Oh, ab- Absolutely. Well, Dave, I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so, all I'm doing today. Oh, <laughs> thanks so much. Because well, I do, I do want to touch. Uh, well, kind of, you know, one of, well, my one of my reasons for existence, for reasons for being a chaplain, is is to to help people understand and de- develop um, a, a hope and a strength that comes uh, that's even even greater. Um, and so one of your recent books, and uh, my copy just came yesterday in the mail on spiritual combat. And the Army's new 
Holistic Health and Fitness Manual, FM7-22, which I believe it used to be just physical physical fitness, right, and physical readiness training. But now when we talk about holistic health and fitness, the Army is trying to address not just the physical fitness but mental readiness, um, it, sleep hygiene, uh, diet as well. And then, of course, um, what, what thrilled me and, and has really been fruitful for starting some conversations is spiritual readiness is one of those five pillars of yeah. holistic health. Um, how do you maintain spiritual fitness and why do you think that's so important, Dave? Well, you know, first off, uh, you know, sleep. Uh, I teach, if I had 30 minutes to teach any law enforcement class, any military class, I'd talk about sleep deprivation. We're in the middle of this global epidemic of sleep deprivation. Oh, the key factor in suicides. It's a key factor in traffic deaths. It's a key factor in the opiate overdoses. Sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. You know, I, I, Doc, I heard all the time, give me a pill to fix. You don't need a pill. You need more sleep. Yeah. And you got to knock off those mega doses of caffeine in the evening that are stopping you from getting deep cycle sleep. And the tendons and muscle never get a chance to fully relax. So three major epidemics have exploded around the world. Suicide has exploded. Traffic deaths after decade after decade, we brought traffic down. Traffic deaths down. Airbags, seatbelts, medical technology. Now for the last decade, everywhere they're back up again. There's a reason why airline pilots and truck drivers are required to long get enough sleep. And then, like I said, this 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 opiate epidemic. Why opiates? Why are opiates a drug of choice? Prescription opiates have always been there. What is the new factor driving the demand? It all comes back to this global epidemic of sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I, I trained one uh, one unit, and the sergeant major told me on their last combat deployment, they were uh, they were in a barracks environment more or less at night, then they'd punch out into combat during the day. And the sergeant major said, it's lights out after 10 o'clock. He said, if I catch you playing video games after 10 o'clock, I'm gonna take your games. He said, in a week, I had a closet overflowing with video games. He said, these are good troops. They wouldn't disobey an order. They can't not play those games. And, and, and they're designed to make us lose track of time. They put us in a flow state. They're designed to do that based on billions of dollars of research. You know, binge watching TV shows, the internet never sleeps, social media all night long. And this industry is never, Facebook's never going to say, you've been online for the last 48 hours straight, you need some sleep. They're not going to tell you that. The head of Netflix said their, their, their number one competitor is not other online providers. Their number one competitor is sleep. The corporate policy of Netflix is to steal your sleep. So this, this global epidemic of sleep deprivation, and there's entire industries that just want to use you up and throw you away. They don't care about the health impact of what's happening. So I, I really watch my sleep. I really practice what I preach. And, and, I, and I, I work hard on getting enough sleep. And, uh, and I, I wore a Fitbit for a while. The Fitbit does a very good job at tracking your sleep hours. And, uh, and, and it really put me on the right cycle. It made me keep track of my sleep and, and laid a good foundation for me. My faith, uh, you know, my wife and I pray for each other every night. Uh, I'm, when I'm away, you know, I was I, was, I got picked up by a, a young Marine lieutenant driving uh, to 29 Palms Marine Base. And my wife was going to bed in, uh, uh, in, in outside of St. Louis, you know, at home. And uh, 
And I, I kind of leaned away and I, I, I said our nightly prayer for each other. And, and it goes into some depth and family. And and uh, and young Marine Lieutenant said, you know, I was, I was kind of hoping he didn't hear what I was saying. <laughs> he said, that's really beautiful. He says, you guys do that every night? I said, every night without fail. So, you know, the, the Bible says, wherever two or three gathered in my name, there am I in your midst. And, and I think I, I say that there's a special mojo in your prayer when there's when there's you and somebody else in that prayer and you and your wife, you know, are your 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 prayer buddies, you know, every night holding up in prayer. I think that's one of the sustainment issues that we've been able to use to, to carry us over time. Physically, the, 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 the blind spot is sleep deprivation. It's eating us alive. And then spiritually, to be able to embrace that and apply it to your to your family, to apply it to your you know your daily activities and and truly daily prayers, and you can give it to God at the end of every day and hold each other up in prayer and hold our loved ones up in prayer. Uh, those are truly powerful sustainment issues. Well, I think these are all related. It was uh, one of my professors at the seminary, um, w- a wonderful guy, but he told us one day in class, he said, "Sometimes the best spiritual care a person can get is a good night's sleep." And, and well, and it's and it's all related to the spiritual, the physical, and the mental, um, right? Because people, well, I'll, you talk, you you touched on, you hit some of my kind of hot button issues, yeah. the oh. social media and, and computer games, things like that. Those quick dopamine hits without any effort, without any physical effort at all. So you, you're we're we're lab rats that are addicted to that dopamine reward without with the little the least expenditure. Of, of effort or sweat equity possible. Um, we're not, we don't spend time moving around physical fitness. And so we're, we're, we're tired at the end of the day, but our bodies haven't you been just exercised. Gave me a piece of the puzzle that I'm going to use every time now. I, I talk about, but I never talk about the fact that there's minimal expenditure of actual energy. Boom. You just, you just put a round in my magazine. Well, so it's, it's, if it's good, it's not it. original to me. I mean, I was a psych major oh, back yeah. in college, oh, but it was, yeah. it was, uh, yeah. it was full disclosure. It was, and I, I'm going to have to look up the guy's name, but it was a guy, yeah. that, a guest that um, Jocko Willink had on his Willink. podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'll, I can, I can, I can look it up uh, and tell you who uh, said that. But, but yeah, he said that's that's the issue. Is these there's we want that reward and we get addicted to that reward. And of course, you know, we're humans. We try to. It's a, it's it's an adaptive behavior to expend as little effort as possible. And on video games, there's there's no effort. Yeah. Oh, social media too. You know, likes or angry replies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I've definitely seen like a. It's almost like a polarization within the soldiers, right? So like, there's some that go into that category, and then there's some that choose like the physical fitness, and mm-hmm. they, but either way, they're looking for it, right? And they're trying to find it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's definitely a- out there. I think it's one of the hardest things to go back to what we talked about at the beginning. You know, my first deployments, you know, like when we deployed, we'd go down range, we'd, we'd be in a barracks or we'd be in a, you know, a tent or something like that. And uh, maybe there was one phone center that you had to call back and like get some like operator and maybe you got like a 10 minute call back home once a week. Um, and then, uh, then you'd go and play cards. You go play spades. You go play dominoes. You go, you know, do all that type of stuff. But you're doing it as a group, right? And you're learning about each other, and you're building that 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 relationship that probably Audie Murphy was probably talking about a little bit. And now, you know, as if you know, <laughs> we've evolved through the wars. 
you know, you, you have like literally, I had soldiers like FaceTiming like with their oh. with their family back home. You know, as I'm trying to get their mind set on the mission, you know, they're worried about their spouse losing the keys in the garage. You know, that morning. You know, the that constant contact uh, is something that's always there. But what I'm getting at is it, it takes away, you know, uh, with the social media, the, the, the over-communication, um, you know, that quick dopamine stuff. Um, it it kind of takes away from that, that, that need to bond as a, as, a, as a squad, a platoon, or, you know, whatever that you need to do. But I have noticed, like, as soon as, you know, you get thrust into some type of, you know, very challenging situation where it is life and death and stuff. That group galvanizes real quick, <laughs> and and then they are inseparable, mm-hmm. um, and it kind of yeah. goes into that. But I think that's one of the challenges that we as leaders have today with soldiers is trying to find that that balance where we don't want to take away from to the point where no one wants to come into our organizations because they're like, well, we can't have any of the stuff that we want. But we also need to find a way to keep them engaged, right, in, in part uh, of – uh, not being totally distracted by that stuff. Um, in this process of 20 years of war and, and being able to train so many units, punching out, coming back, one battalion commander told me, and it was kind of a revelation to him, like he just put the pieces together. He said, you know, we had one re- deployment when we were we were in the field for, for, for a year. Yep. He said, you know, there was no barracks, there was no electricity, you know. And he said, he said, it, it, we had zero suicides and we came home and we had zero problems. He said, you know, you, 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 you did a field workout. You did a field shower. You play cards. You mentioned playing spades. Mm-hmm. He said, you play cards, you talk, and then you go to bed and you get a good night's sleep. He said, you know, in retrospect, being in the field with in, in this Spartan environment and Spartans a really good word for us to wrap our mind around, but be in the field in this Spartan environment without electricity, you know, without, without Game Boys and television and FaceTiming and computers, it was probably the best thing we could possibly have done. He said, I, I will hold that unit at that time and that deployment and that return as the single healthiest battalion in the U.S. Armed Forces at that point in time. And, and again, it was like a revelation to him that this process of, of not having all those luxuries was the best gift we could give to our soldiers for a year. And he said they were invigorated. They were re-enlisted at an incredible rate. There was limited suicides, none is is what he said. Uh, And and so there's something to think about in in what you're saying, Uh, what we want to give our soldiers. You know, we want to be loving parents. We want to give our children everything, but we know we can give them too much. Mm -hmm. You know, where do we draw the line for long-term survival? And, And I think this idea of being deployed and going into this Spartan environment uh, has a lot to be said for it if we if we look things over and we learn the lessons of twenty years of war. There's yeah, you've got that sense of belonging. There's a there's a clear sense of purpose and mission, and what you do matters. Uh, it's it's life and death for the people to your left and to your right. Um, and and you've you've got each other's backs. And, well, I think that's yeah. it. You build mutual trust, you know. Yeah. And if you have yeah. trust within your whatever squad, group, platoon, uh, there, there's very little that you can't do. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if they if if service members trust their leaders, yeah. oh, they'll they'll do anything. They'll they'll run to the sound of the guns. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, Dave, uh, the big idea for our podcast, Open the Trenches, is 
living, living and leading with hope. And there are a lot of things in society, in our world, things that would, would cause us despair. Um, we're, we're more connected in more ways to more people than ever before, but yet isolation and, and loneliness uh, and just gener- being discouraged are, are epidemic. Um, what, what gives you hope? Well, you know, I've got two books coming out in the next six months. One is on hunting, and and it will be the hunting what on combat and on killing was their field, and they really work together. You know, in our you know archaeologically speaking, hunting and combat were common skills, and killing is a common denominator among them all. Uh, and it, it, growing up hunting and and so on and so forth really empowers us in so many ways. But the other book coming out is on spiritual combat volume two. And, uh, and we I really think that it's, it's going to be important. Uh, on Spiritual Combat, Volume 1 was a Christian Book Award finalist. We really touched some lives. It's really taken off. And I, I think the second book is even better. But we talk about really wrapping your mind around eternity. You know, I, I'm ready to stand up and die for my nation. I'm just the total 100% patriot. I will fight for my nation. And, and my nation is is the, the, the worldly guarantee of passing on to my children and grandchildren what I believe are, are, are necessary resources. But sooner or later, our nation will fall. Our, our son will die, but eternity continues. And, and, and it's so important. One of the things we, we pick uh, uh, from Erasmus, and Erasmus took the 22, you know, lessons remain virtuous in a violent world. And he said, you know, just put everything in perspective by understanding how unimportant things in this world are compared to eternity. You know, it's just almost impossible to wrap your mind around. Eternity goes on infinitely. But if we reach out and make eternity finite, then this little time on earth shrinks to insignificant nothing. And so I think the spiritual side of the house has got to be the baseline everything else rests upon to understand that, that we're here for a brief period of time. And our mission here on earth is to do as much good as humanly possible. Love God and love others. You know, that, you know that, that, that's the baseline we build upon. If we really love others, then we'll bring them to the knowledge of salvation. And we do that by, by doing good works. Do good and grow you not weary of doing good. Galatians 6, 9, my life verse. Yeah? And, and then give the honor and glory to God. Because if we seek the glory for ourselves, it's empty, it's hollow. But if we give him the glory, he gives us love, joy, peace, and a bunch of other neat things. And, and so I, I think that investment in that, that, that dynamic, it lies at the heart of, uh, of our ability to keep it all in perspective. I and mean, just remember, you know, sooner or later, our nation will pass. Our, 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 our star will die, but eternity continues. And if you have even the faintest idea that there might be an eternity, then there's nothing on earth more important than, than getting it and embracing it and applying it. If you have just a remote idea, it might be true in it, and, and you wish it was true, then that's a little seed of belief. And plant that little seed of belief and, and ask for more, ask for more faith. And, and the disciples asked Jesus, you know, how do we get more faith? You know, the man said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Oh, Jesus did what he asked him to do. So I, I just think that, that that spiritual has got to be the foundation. As I get older, 
I'm able to embrace it more. Uh, and it helps us keep everything in perspective. And I, I mean, it, just never lose track of this. Sooner or later, our nation will fall. Our planet will die. Our sun will die. But eternity continues. And keep just a little part of yourself focused on eternity and, and, and recognize how, how infinitely more important that is. And that this time on earth, that we've got a goal and, and we've been given a mission. And that's on spiritual combat, 30 missions for victorious warfare. What is our mission? And, and then why do bad things happen? You know, if God, we're not God's puppets. He didn't make us his puppets. A loving father would not make his children puppets. He would, he's given us free will. And that means people make mistakes and people do bad things. And it's our job to deal with that. And when you say, God, do somebody said, I did, I sent you. And recognize we're not his puppets. A loving father wouldn't do that. We're given free will. And that means people make mistakes. And that means people have bad decisions. So people like us, they're going to clean up those bad decisions and, and help people and protect people. And we're the sheepdogs. And I'll, I'll wrap up with this. You know, we, we say in, 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 uh, uh, in volume two, you know, the idea of being God's faithful sheepdogs. You know, uh, uh, I know when we get there, we'll understand things we can't even comprehend. But right now, you know, I've got a dog, a little chocolate lab. If I let her off the leash, she'll roll in something stinky, you know, and, and, and she'll get in trouble. I still love her. And, 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 and God sees every bad thing we do, and he still loves us. And my dog doesn't understand most of what I do. What I'm doing right now, she can't comprehend. I'm online. I'm reading. Even talking. She can't understand speech. She can barely understand. I think that's how we are with God right now. It's all I can do to think about being God's faithful dog. And, uh, and, and, and a man named Will Rogers said, if you get to thinking you're a person of some importance, try telling another man's dog what to do. You ever do that? You know? The dog looks and says, look, I don't know much. I'm just a dog. But I know this. <laughs> I'm not your dog. Don't tell people, you know, once, once you have given yourself to, to Jesus, once you embrace eternal salvation, the evil one can come to you and say, hey, I'm not your dog. <laughs> and there's great freedom that comes with that. Well, that's a beautiful thought to end on, Dave. Thanks so much for, for being so generous with your time uh, with us today. God bless you and, and your family and your work. And to you, my brother. And, and again, both of you, it's been an honor. You want to get, finish the book? Uh, let's do it again. And we'll talk about that in more depth. I'd be honored to have you on board. I'd, I'd love that. Thanks, Steve. God bless. This podcast is produced by the Oregon National Guard Public Affairs Office. My prayer for you is that wherever you find yourself, that you might find hope for today and strength for the ambiguity and chaos of life. Blessings on the rest of your day.